the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized in 2012 as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Horses Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, today accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hello, everybody. Okay, for those of you who don't know about the show, the show is in different parts. The first part of the show, we talk about estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. Now, listen, the way we practice law has been changed over the last couple of months. But if you do want to call us, we are able to sign documents right now, wills even, through Zoom, Skype, remotely. So if you want to get some estate planning done, give us a call at 718-238-6500. You can stay in the safety of your own home. Now, the second part of the show, we talk about politics, history, religion. Today, we're, we're going to spread a field a little bit. We're going to be talking history and, and a little bit of film because we're talking to Tom Clavin about his latest book, Tombstone. And he's been on the show before talking about Wild Bill Hickok and Dodge City and Bat Masterson and Wyatt Earp. And we continue the story with Wyatt Earp. And, and it, it's a fascinating time, Tombstone. It's the last vestige of the Old West versus the New West back in the, the 1880s. The Earp brothers representing the New West law and order, the Clantons and the Cowboys representing cattle rustles and freedom of the range and so forth and so on. There are a variety of opinions on that, but... Yeah, but the Clanton brothers were cattle rustlers, so that was, you know, that, that that's beyond... Possibly, perfect. possibly. And we're also going to be talking to Congresswoman Elise Stefanik from the 21st District of New York. That's upstate New York, you know, that's... I, I You don't hear this comment very much in New York City, but the North Country, you know, like north of Albany up to Canada practically, so... Right, that her, I mean, she covers, the, I think, some of the most beautiful country... Yeah. countryside in New York State. It's and, gorgeous. And it's the largest geographical district in the state because the population in the North Country is not very uh, congested. So we're going to be talking about that. But meanwhile, let's get back into uh, estate planning and elder law. Now, each week, Kevin McCullough takes one of the questions that are emailed to us and reads that question on his show, and we try to answer it. So take it away, Kevin. Hi, Kevin McCullough. Every week we promise that you're going to get your questions answered about uh, state care and elder law. And here to do that for us is Mike Connors of Connors & Sullivan. Uh, Mike, this week's question uh, comes from Anonymous. We just want to change the executor on our wills drawn up in 2000. 
Is this just a simple correction? Well, the answer is, you know, yes and no. Obviously, it's not complicated, but at the same time, to change the executor on your will, you have to go through all the formalities of a will. It has to be witnessed by two people. You have to declare to those two witnesses that you want to change your will, and they have to sign. You have to sign, obviously. The signatures of the witnesses should be notarized. So it's not complicated. It's a relatively simple procedure, but at the same time, it's not just crossing out one name and putting another name in it. And, of course, in today's world, we can sign those documents through Zoom or Skype or one of those other remote signings. Right. Is it a good time, Mike, at that same time to take a fresh look that, at everything that's in there and just maybe have your allocations double-checked one last time? Yeah, I mean, there are other things, too. I mean, why are you changing the executor? A lot of times what happens is, you know, you do a will 20 years ago, your children are relatively young, and... 20 years go by and your children are now in their 30s, maybe you want them to be the executor. So that's that's one of the things we always look at. And, of course, yeah, what does your will say? You know, is it is it what you really want it to say? And it's always a good thing to look at your will and see if it's up to date. Yeah. Well, friends, there's no one I trust more as it comes to the uh, end-of-life planning than Connors and Sullivan. That's why the McCulloughs had our wills drawn up in Mike's office. And their staff couldn't have been greater to work with. Uh, The phone number is 718-238-6500 if you've got questions. 718-238-6500. You get a question answered here on Kevin McCullough Radio each week. And Mike answers a whole bunch more on his program, Ask the Lawyer, uh, Saturday mornings at 8 o'clock on AM 570, The Mission, and FM 102.3. Also heard Saturdays at 6. And then Sunday mornings at 11 on AM 970, The Answer. Mike Connors, thanks so much. Thank you, Kevin. I have children. How can I protect them if something happens Will my to assets be lost if I go into a nursing home? We have property. How will it affect the ones still here? Who will help us take care of Grandma? These questions can be answered by calling 718-238-6500 for a free consultation from Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, providing dedicated, caring, and highly responsive legal services. They're focused on issues that matter to you, protection of your family, preservation of your assets, and respect of your wishes with dignity. That's all I want from a lawyer, making it easier for my children. Call 718-238-6500. Get a free consultation. Connors & Sullivan's clients don't get lost in the cracks. They have dedicated attorneys who know their clients and the issues that matter most to them. Connors and Sullivan's estate planning, elder law, and probate attorneys work closely with every client. Don't leave behind problems for your family. Call 718-238-6500 and get a free consultation today. Connors and Sullivan, plan now for later. Thanks again, Kevin. You can listen to Kevin each week, Monday through Friday on 970 The Answer at 5 o'clock, part of the 5 o'clock hour he shared with John Katzmatidis, so you can catch him an hour early, too, on 970 The Answer. You can catch him every day at 3 o'clock on 570 The Mission. So thanks again to Kevin. Now, Beth, do you have a question from the email? I have a question. Um, Charlotte has a home, a house in New Jersey, and she wants to know if her New York will will cover that should something happen to her and the answer you know it's a simple yes but you know basically any will that's valid in any state covers assets that ordinarily would be covered by a will in in the other 49 states now in louisiana there's some different rules on real estate or whatever but for the most part a will done in new york is going to be recognized in 
the other 49 states and the territories. Uh, real estate overseas, especially in countries that are covered by the Napoleonic Code countries, you know, which is most of the Spanish, French, so forth. Most European countries are covered by the Napoleonic Code. They have different rules as far as real estate is concerned. But if you live in the United States and you own real estate in, in, in the United States, a will done in New York will be recognized and valid in the 49 other states. And at the same time, a will done in another state will be valid in the other 49 states. So, you know, and in most European countries, as far as real, uh, non-real estate assets, it will cover. And even in, you know, in the common law countries, common law countries being England, Ireland, um, Canada, Australia, those countries, English common law, a will done again in New York will be recognized in all, all those other countries. So, you know, you don't necessarily have to do a will for e where you have land in each state. Now, yes, some people like to do a will even in the countries we're talking about. For instance, Ireland, they do a, a will in Ireland to cover their property in the Republic of Ireland. Uh, that's okay, but you've got to be very careful. One of the things that sometimes, because the, we do recognize wills done in both countries, if you have a will in Ireland, you say, I revoke all my wills done prior to now, which is standard language, a standard clause, you could revoke what you will in the U.S. or vice versa. So that's one thing to be aware of. Let's say if you're, if you're dealing with another common law country, England, Ireland, Canada, you want to be very careful because I've seen this happen. People, it's a common clause. I revoke all wills prior made by me. And maybe you did a will covering assets in Ireland. And then inadvertently, you've revoked that will. And the same, you do a will in Ireland, and you revoke a will in New York, and there's chaos. So you got to be a little careful when you're doing this. The, the rules are not that hard, but you, you got to know what you're doing. And, you know, make sure. If, if, read your own documents, too. I mean, that's one thing. Now, we're going to take a, a short break. At the end of the break, we're going to be talking to Elise Stefanek. And, and part of the thing we're going to be talking about is COVID-19, the nursing home scandal, Governor Cuomo ordering nursing homes to take in sick patients. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. We'll be back in a few minutes. Whether you need help with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, living will, or protecting your assets from nursing home costs, Connors & Sullivan's goal is always the protection of your rights and interests. The professionals at Connors & Sullivan have been helping people like you plan their estates and protect their families for over 30 years. I'm Mike Connors. Come to our office for a free initial consultation. Talk with me or one of our experienced attorneys to see how we can help you protect your family, your assets, and your legacy. There is no one strategy that fits everyone, but the biggest mistake when it comes to estate planning is no planning at all. Call Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law today to schedule a free initial consultation with an attorney at any of their convenient locations in Brooklyn, Midtown Manhattan, Queens, and Staten Island. 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Or visit their website, connorsandsullivan.com. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. Right now, we're very pleased to have Representative from New York's 21st Congresswoman, Elise Stefanik. Welcome to Connors Corner. I'm so excited to join you today. Okay. Uh, you know, I got one question for those down here in uh, New York City area. Where is the 21st District? 
So the 21st district is as far north as you can go. Uh, my district is comprised of the North Country and parts of the Capital Region. If you know your New York State upstate geography, it starts in Saratoga County. It goes all the way up to the Canadian border and all the way west to Watertown. So I have 12 counties, and I represent about 40% of the geography of New York State. So it's a big district. It's a big district, small population by density. Exactly. Okay. And I have 194 towns and villages, so it's very rural, uh, but each town and village is important. Now, how are you guys doing as far as the COVID crisis? In terms of the COVID crisis, our numbers have been significantly lower than the apex downstate. And our county public health offices have done a tremendous job really prioritizing getting the information out and making smart decisions to keep uh, that transmission rate as low as possible. The challenge in our region is the impact that this has had on small businesses and our rural hospitals. Our hospitals did not see the influx of patients the way that the downstate hospitals did, but we also had to pause our elective surgeries. So it's been a financial challenge for hospitals and community health centers, and I've worked on that, delivering over $100 million of funds. In the small business perspective, when you think about the major employers in my district, it's really mom-and-pop small businesses, whether it's restaurants, locally-owned hotels, tourist-related businesses, and they've been suffering significantly. So we are in phase one of reopening, about to go into phase two, uh, and I've been engaged in conversations with all of the stakeholders in my district to make sure that we can safely jumpstart that process. All right. Now, getting back to Governor Cuomo's handling uh, of the crisis, you know, here in the city, we've had thousands of people die in nursing homes. Was that partially avoidable? I believe it was absolutely avoidable. If you look at the numbers in New York State compared to the numbers elsewhere, this was a bad decision by the governor and New York State's Department of Health. The mandate uh, that the governor issued requiring nursing homes to accept they forced them to accept positive COVID patients, regardless of their ability to isolate or regardless of their ability to provide the workforce or the seniors with the appropriate PPE. That could have been avoided had the governor followed CDC guidance. CDC guidance was very, very clear. COVID positive patients should only be accepted based upon the ability of the accepting facility to meet the recommended infection control practices. And I think that's why you're seeing bipartisan calls for an independent investigation. On top of that, there was no transparency and no information sharing to family members, to seniors who were living in those facilities, or to workers. That was a, a bad decision by the state. And there are families who are grieving and who are asking for answers. I've been very disappointed that the governor has pointed fingers rather than taking these families' concerns seriously. He is blaming the Trump administration. Now, how does he get that passed? He's wrong. I mean, if you look at CDC guidance, it was clear that decisions to accept positive COVID patients should be based on the ability of the nursing home to meet that recommended infection control practices. So, for example, if the nursing home was able to isolate COVID-positive patients, they had to do that. That was not in the New York State guidance. And you're seeing a cover-up as well. New York State Department of Health has taken that mandate down off the website, which is government at its worst. We need transparency. People should be able to look and learn from this to ensure it never happens again. 
Now, when this first came out, I mean, my first impression was, well, where else could these people go? But there were a lot of alternatives I've, I've since found out. There were alternatives. Look at the Javits Center. Look at the Navy Comfort and Mercy ships. You had hospitals in upstate. We did say take some positive COVID patients, but we also had hospitals that were completely empty or nearly empty. So there, there could have been many other solutions. Again, they did not follow CDC guidelines, and you are seeing this play out when they've taken off that initial mandate from the New York State Department of Health website. That is not good government. There needs to be sunlight and transparency and, and most importantly, answers for families who deserve answers. I've talked to some of the families and some who are in my district who had relatives who are in nursing homes downstate who have yet to get any answers or responses for from New York State Department of Health. Do you have any good statistics? Because, you know, statistics can be fudged, obviously. Somebody is in a nursing home, they go to a hospital, they pass away in a hospital. Uh, do you have any good, solid statistics, or does anybody? Well, that's the problem as well, is New York State is undercounting the number of positive COVID cases and COVID-related deaths that stem from the nursing home crisis. What they are doing is if an individual passed away in a hospital and not physically at the nursing home facility, they are not counting that. So I believe that New York State is undercounting this number. Uh, the governor's team has thrown out a number of 3,000. We know that is inaccurate. We know that it's over 6,000 COVID-related deaths, but I also believe that in itself is undercounted. Um, which is why we need answers. We need an independent investigation, and we need to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Is there any media support, as far as you can tell, from you know, because it seems almost like a dead issue if, if you're you're listening to the media. Well, if you look at some of the editorial boards, both in the Hudson Valley, in Syracuse, the papers have put out pretty hard-hitting editorials saying that these families deserve answers and that many of the decisions from the governor and the Department of Health uh, were not according to CDC guidance. So there are people speaking out and there are family members speaking out. Uh, and I believe it's our job as elected officials to listen to those family members' concerns and fight to make sure that they get the answers. These are families that are grieving and I've heard just awful tragic stories of you know, not even getting an answer until they saw COVID on the death certificate or not even being given enough time to contact a funeral home to prepare uh, the deceased for a proper, proper burial process. And these families are, are dealing with that emotional burden on top of the traditional grieving process. Let me ask you, do you think there are any going to be any repercussions when election time comes around in a couple of years? Well, in my district, you know, people are upset about how New York State has handled this crisis. I will credit the county public health officials in my district and the hospital leadership at the local level have been tremendous. And I'll give you an example related to the nursing home uh, scandal in New York State versus how the county public health officials handled it. In my district up in Plattsburgh, Clinton County, so the most northwestern, or sorry, northeastern part of my district, uh, the county public health officials immediately put out the first positive COVID case of a senior at a senior living facility. That was the county public health office doing it on its own, being transparent, sharing it with the other workers, with the other seniors and families living there. That was not how New York State, uh, they did not share that information uh, to family members who had an elderly relative in a nursing home that had a positive COVID case. So at the local level, I think we've done a tremendous job, but there are significant frustrations with how the governor and New York State's Department of Health has mismanaged this.
Now, I mean, the counter arguments can be it's very easy to handle things in a rural county. It's a lot harder to handle things in a congested city. Well, I mean, that doesn't that's not an effective counter argument for transparency. You can be transparent and good government, whether you're in a rural county or an urban city. Um, families deserve to have that information. Seniors who live in that facility deserve to have that information. All right. Now I'm going to shift gears a little bit. We got to come back. The economy is going to come back. The mayor, I think, of New York City, he just wants to ruin our economy, it seems like. He doesn't want businesses to reopen. It doesn't matter. And we're raised, the real estate taxes in New York City are going to go up in July. Here we are, the, the landlord's not getting rent from his tenants, his commercial tenants. They're not in business. His residential tenants are not working, so they can't pay the rent. But yet his real estate taxes are going to go up in July. Well, this has been a public health crisis, but it's also been an economic crisis. I talked about how the small businesses have been impacted and the number of families who are out of work in my district. I'm a believer that as a policymaker, we have to do both at the same time, which is protecting the public's health, making good decisions when it comes to ramping up testing, continue to invest in research and development for the vaccine, while simultaneously safely reopening our economy. Um, and what I've found as an effective tool is I have a number of working groups in my district, manufacturers, hospitality, small businesses, chambers of commerce, working together to put out those best practices that the business community and employers can use to safely update their operations to take those mitigating steps, but also allowing them to get back to work. Um, people are people are suffering, and the ones that are suffering are are hardworking families who don't have much in savings, and they really don't have a choice, but they need to look to go back to those economic opportunities. Um, so it's you have to do both as a policymaker, and I believe you can do both. Do you have any studies, or do you know how effective is stay at home? Well, stay at home definitely flattened the curve. That was really important. Everybody played their part. But the challenge with stay at home is not everyone has a job that you can do via teleworking. And our essential workers are going out there every single day, whether it's the truck drivers, the grocers, the farmers, the milk processors, to make sure that society continues to run. And um, they haven't had the luxury of staying at home. Again, when you look at the demographics of my district, economically, we're talking about hardworking middle-class families who you know, work hard for that paycheck every day and are eager to have a safe way of getting reopened. All right. Now, finally, you know, is there anything in Congress right now that you're working on that the public should know about, or what interesting things are happening that your committees are working on? Well, there's a number of issues that I'm working on. Number one, making sure that the SBA Paycheck Protection Program is flexible for some of the concerns from businesses in my district. For example, I have many seasonal businesses, and um, I worked with the Secretary of the Treasury and the SBA Administrator to update some of that guidance, but I still want to see increased flexibility. Uh, northern border issues are important in my district because I'm along the New York-Canadian border. Uh, the border is closed except for essential health care workers and essential trade and supply chain. Um, that reopening of the border will start on June 21st unless it gets further delayed. In addition, I'm on the House China Task Force uh, because I do think that this crisis has highlighted our over-reliance on China, whether it's our manufacturing for PPE ventilators, where every country in the world was having to look 
towards China uh, to uh, get access to things as basic as masks and gowns and gloves. We need to rebuild our North American manufacturing capacity here. Uh, and I'm also uh, on the House-China Task Force from a national security perspective. I think there needs to be accountability. I think we need to ensure that we get the most accurate information as to how this virus started and why China lied to the international community, including lying, and the WHO repeated these lies, that this is not transmitted by human-to-human contact. Well, Congresswoman, thank you very much for being on Connor's Corner. Thank you for what you're doing. You know, we appreciate your efforts. You know, not everybody in New York City is a, is a Democrat, and some of us appreciate, you know, Republicans working on our side. Well, I work for everybody in my district, and I'm proud to earn the support, not just of Republicans, but also Democrats and independents. And, um, you know, I'm working hard every day to make sure that the North Country has a seat at the table, whether it's on state-level issues or federal issues. Thank you for your service. Thank you so much. Whether you need help with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, living will, or protecting your assets from nursing home costs, Connors & Sullivan's goal is always the protection of your rights and interests. The professionals at Connors & Sullivan have been helping people like you plan their estates and protect their families for over 30 years. I'm Mike Connors. Come to our office for a free initial consultation. Talk with me or one of our experienced attorneys to see how we can help you protect your family, your assets, and your legacy. There is no one strategy that fits everyone, but the biggest mistake when it comes to estate planning is no planning at all. Call Connors and Sullivan Attorneys at Law today to schedule a free initial consultation with an attorney at any of their convenient locations in Brooklyn, Midtown Manhattan, Queens, and Staten Island. 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500 or visit their website connorsandsullivan.com. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. You know, uh, those of you who know the show, you know Tom Clavin's been on our show more than a few times. We've talked about baseball, and we've talked about the history of the Old West. And we're going to stick with the history of the Old West because he's he's got a book out right now, Tombstone, The Earp Brothers, Doc Holliday, and The Vendetta Ride from Hell. Welcome back to Connors Corner, Tom. Well, thanks for having me back. It'll be a pleasure, I'm sure. Okay, now, obviously we know what the book is about, but but why did you write the book, and and what is it about? What do you want the reader to get out of this? Well, two reasons, and I'll make both brief. Uh, One is that this book, Tombstone, completes a Frontier Lawman trilogy that I started a few years ago. It really, you know, in, in order of chronological order it's wild bill about wild bill hickok and that lone gunman lawman that came out of the civil war then the second book in the trilogy is dodge city with wyatt Earp and bat masterson as young young you know lawmen together trying to tame the town on the frontier and tombstone completes the trilogy so that's one reason i wanted to complete the trilogy take that wyatt Earp saga from dodge city to tombstone and what happened and the second reason is that I think from uh, especially for movies, uh, you know, most people have the impression that the climactic moment, the end of the story, so to speak, was the gunfight at the OK Corral. But there's more to the story. There's more to what happened at Tombstone and the Earp Brothers after that. And so I wanted to tell the full story to let people know that when, when the bullets stopped flying at the gunfight at the OK Corral, that was not the end of the story. Now, do you want to set up for our audience the gunfight at the OK Corral? 
set it up for us, what happened, what was the result, and then we'll go into what happened after that. Okay. You know, one of the things that I found most fascinating about the gunfight at the OK Corral is that it was it was this pivotal moment in the American West because it was you had the, the past was represented by the McLowry brothers and the Clanton brothers. They were not bad guys necessarily, but they did represent a kind of lawless anything goes, we don't respect badges kind of mentality that had been, you know, the Wild West up until October eighteen eighty one when the gunfight took place. And then you had the Earp brothers, Virgil, Wyatt, and Morgan. They were supposedly the good guys. They weren't good, good guys. I mean, Wyatt had spent time in prison for horse theft, for, for example. And then you had Doc Holliday, who few people would consider a good guy. But they represented the new kind of law and order uh, that, that Tombstone and the Frontier was trying to put into place. So, so you'd have communities that could you know, build schools and churches and raise families and things like that. So the, the, on October 26, 1881, the McLowry brothers, the Clanton brothers, those four men faced off against the three Earp brothers and Doc Holliday. And that, that intense, you know, again, from the movies, we think the gunfight at the OK Corral is, you know, a lot of these people running behind water barrels and buildings and, you know, jumping out and shooting at each other. These, these two opposing sides, four men each, faced each other head on in an, in an abandoned lot that was only about 15 feet long. And they, 30 shots were fired in 30 seconds. That's a very intense firefight that took place at uh, the, the gunfight at the OK Corral. And the outcome was that three men died, uh, one of the Clantons and both McLowry brothers. Uh, Virgil and Morgan were seriously wounded. Doc Holliday was wounded, but not too badly. The only one in that vacant lot who, who escaped you know, without a bullet during the firefight was, was Wyatt Earp. And, uh, and so, again, you know, cue the credits. Usually that people think, well, that's the end of the story, but there is more to it. You know, getting back to it, uh, what led to the feud behind him? It wasn't just law and order, the old or the old West against the new West, or was it? Well, it was, it was, it was, uh, a wider feud. It was also a personal one. I'll do the wider one first. Uh, the, the Clantons and the McLowry's were, were ranchers and they, regularly did cattle rustling. They, they, during the night, they'd slip across the Mexico border. They'd steal cattle. They'd bring it across the back of the United States. They rebrand them. They sell them to the army. They sell them to butcher shops, whatever. And, uh, they also were staking claims that were not on properties that were not theirs. They were claim jumpers. Uh, so they, they were doing a bunch of illegal things and they thought we want a town like tombstone to remain open to our kind of activities, even though it's illegal. And so uh, the Earp brothers, by default, because the the, the sheriff of, the, of, of Cochise County, Johnny Behan, was was not uh, inclined to to take on the ranchers. By default, the Earp brothers, with Virgil being the marshal of Tombstone, not Wyatt, as many people believe, it was Virgil. Uh, by default, they ended up being the ones who were saying, "Listen, you can't do this anymore. This is not what this is not what the frontier wants. This is this, it's, you know we're getting ready for the 20th century here. We're not going back to the to the 1860s and the Civil War. So there was that part of it, and then there was also a personal aspect to it, and that uh, uh, basically Wyatt stole Johnny Behan's girlfriend. Uh, Josephine Marcus was this beautiful young actress who had come to Tombstone, and she fancied the the, the sheriff Johnny Behan, and they got engaged and. When Johnny took too long to actually have a wedding ceremony and she set, set her eyes on Wyatt, well, that was the end of Johnny because she and Wyatt fell in love with each other. So there was also that personal aspect of it, too. All right. So, okay, we had the gunfight. Now, if you watch the 
the John Sturgis movie with Burt Lancaster and Kirk Douglas. Mm. That's that's the end of the movie. But what happened yes. after that? And not, you know, I'm glad you brought that movie up, but that's also true when you see John Ford's movie, My Darling Clementine, and, 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 and almost every other representation that takes that deals with Wyatt Earp and Tombstone. Yes, the gunfight's the end of the movie, but what did happen is that uh, after the gunfight, uh, the Earp brothers and Doc Holliday were all arrested for and charged with murder. Uh, there, was a, there was a trial uh, that Doc and Wyatt were put on trial. Uh, Virgil and Morgan were allowed, you know, they didn't have to go to the courthouse because they were recovering from their wounds. And it was a month-long trial. There were witness after witness was called to testify. Because a lot of people saw the gunfight. You know, the gunfight was, was a huge event in Tombstone. It was the last thing people expected with this town that they thought was going to be, they called themselves the San Francisco of the Southwest. They thought this was a progressive town that was, again, looking at the 20th century. And all of a sudden, this explosion of violence takes place. So there were witnesses called, and what could have happened, I mean, as it turned out, the judge presiding uh, decided that uh, Wyatt and Doc would not have to be transferred up to Tucson and undergo a a really official big trial for murder. But if he had decided that, uh, it could have been a whole different story. You know, Wyatt and Doc could have been sent to prison for life. They could have even been hung, you know, as murderers, but they, they were acquitted of the charge. And that's not the end of the story. Because not long after that, uh, Virgil was ambushed and uh, shotgunned, and he was not killed, but he was maimed for life. And then not long after that, Morgan, uh, the other brother who had participated in the gunfight, and Wyatt was shooting pool in a billiards parlor there in Tombstone, and and he got shot in the back and killed. And so that that was the continuation of the violence. And that's what led to uh, Wyatt and doc holiday. Basically, as I point out in the, in the film, in the, in the, in the book, they, they shared a look. They, they knew that, uh, that uh, enough was enough and that they were going to saddle up and, and that they were going to track down the, the killers. Now, who is doc holiday? <laughs> doc holiday is one of the most unique characters. You know, any, any, anybody who thinks that doc holiday was not that interesting and, and, and was kind of built up uh, as, a, as a Wild West character is, is dead wrong. He was he was he was a, a blue blood Georgia came from a blue blood Georgia family. His father had been a hero in fighting for the South in the in the Civil War, and uh, but uh, and he was he had gone to school for dentistry and he had this rather aristocratic uh, uh, life set for himself. But he developed a serious lung disease and he was told you your only chance of extending your life is life is move out west, try and find a climate that's going to help you breathe. And that's how eventually uh, stops along the way. He mostly was a gambler, uh, you know, supporting himself as he worked his way across uh, the, the, the United States to Arizona, uh, eventually hooking up with his girlfriend, uh, Big Nose Kate. And uh, so when he ended up in Tombstone, he was mostly there because the only friend he had in the world, really, uh, was, was Wyatt Earp. Uh, Doc was a cantankerous, a mean drunk. It, he was quick to pull a gun, even though he had terrible marksmanship, and uh, and and he didn't have to, he necessarily did not have to have anything to do with the gunfight at the OK Corral. It was an Earp Brothers problem, but he went up to Wyatt and said, "How can you do this without me? I'm your I'm your friend, you know. And if you're going to get into trouble, I'm going to get into trouble." So he was he was a fascinating character, and he's he's had the good fortune too for 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 moviegoers that he's been portrayed by some interesting actors over the years. Yeah, now we're getting into the movies. 
In your question, and I mean, I, I don't think we could even name all the actors portrayed Doc Holliday from Victor Mature <laughs> to Val Kilmer, yeah. uh, you know, Dennis Quaid, uh, Kirk Douglas. Who's your favorite Doc mm-hmm. Holliday? Who do you th- or and who and who do you think is the closest to representing the true Doc Holliday? Well, you know, my answer I think is is for people who have seen the, the movie Tombstone are going to are not going to be surprised when I say Val Kilmer, but I have to put a big asterisk there, and here's the reason why: Val Kilmer is terrific playing Doc Holliday in the movie Tombstone. It's it's one of those indelible performances that defined his entire career, really. That, maybe some people would say Top Gun. But the irony is that when Doc Holliday was in Tombstone, he was the healthiest he was of his adult life because of the dry, warm climate actually did good things for his lungs. So so Val Kilmer is great as portraying. You, you look at him on screen and you want to put that guy right into some kind of hospital. <laughs> but, but in real life, at that particular time, Doc was in pretty robust health. It was after he had to leave because of the gunfight and the and the, and the, the vengeance ride and everything. He had he and, and Wyatt had to leave Arizona, and they ended up in Colorado and elsewhere. And out of that climate, that's when his health started to go downhill again. But let me, if I can add one more thing to it, it is kind of interesting how the movies have treated Doc Holliday, knowing that he was somebody with a serious lung, lung disease. You have him played by Victor Mature, who's this big, robust guy. And then at the movie, Gunfight of O.K. Corral, he's played by Spartacus. So, <laughs> so, so it's kind of funny how they've totally ignored the fact, except they give him a handkerchief to cough into. They totally ignored the fact that Doc Holliday was a pretty seriously ill guy. Now, whoa, in the Kevin Costner film, Dennis Quaid, he, you know, he starved himself to death i guess to do that role. yes and and i that's true i'm glad you mentioned that i don't want to leave dennis quaid out he did a very very good job it's just kind of ironic the way things worked out that you had tombstone came out just before the film wyatt earp in which kevin costner who's good at wyatt earp and he, he actually physically resembles wyatt uh, in a lot of ways uh and 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 but they you know you have these sometimes this happens in hollywood who can explain it that you have a two films come out about a very similar or the same topic at around the same time. And usually one for any number of reasons gets remembered. And the other one sort of like is, is, is overshadowed. So unfortunately for Dennis Quaid, he gives a very good performance, but Val Kilmer is the one people remember. Yeah. Now we talked about Doc, Wyatt Earp. Who's your favorite Wyatt Earp and why? I do like Kevin Costner as Wyatt Earp. I do like Henry Fonda as Wyatt Earp and, 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 uh, uh, the John Ford movie, My Darling Clementine. Uh, I think Burt Lancaster is is kind of miscast as 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 Wyatt Earp, even though I think he's a wonderful actor. And I, I guess I I go with Kurt Russell. I just think that casting of that picture was so good. I know you you read things about behind the scenes in that movie, how troubled it was. It, it's almost like a Casablanca situation where they they did everything wrong and it turned into a great picture. <laughs> and and he in the movie Tombstone, the director got fired. The, the picture got rewritten. The picture got redirected. But uh, you have Kurt Russell as Wyatt Earp. You have Sam Elliott as Virgil Earp. You have Bill Pullman as, as Morgan Earp and Val Kilmer. I think that that's such a great uh, casting choices. And I think uh, – and, and the way the interaction of the brothers in that picture, because that's a big part of why I wanted to do this book too. And that's why in the subtitle it says right at the top, the Earp brothers. Uh, the book is really a lot about the relationship of the brothers, how clannish they were, and it was all for one and one for all. All right. Now, you know, we haven't talked about the vendetta part yet. What What's the vendetta? What happened? Mm. 
Well, after you know, it was bad enough that when when Virgil Earp, uh, in December of 1881, he was ambushed and, and shot from behind, and even though he lived, he would never be able to use his left arm again. And and even then, the instinct of the remaining Earp brothers and their wives was let's circle the wagons. They all moved to the same hotel to sort of look after each other and watch each other's back. And then by the by a couple of months later, things seemed to calm down. It seemed to be okay to come out again and Wyatt and, and Morgan are shooting pool and and in a billiard parlor. And all of a sudden these gunshots ring out, the glass behind the Morgan breaks, and 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 he's he he's shot in the back and, and killed. He dies right there on the pool table. And that was when Wyatt said, Okay, the, the only way to end this is is I'm gonna track down the guys who are after my, my family. So he and Doc mount up, and they do with another Earp brother named Warren Earp, who was younger, and they get two or three other fellas who were were you know also inclined to be loyal to Wyatt, and they form this this ad hoc posse, and they went and they tracked down the guys who they believe were responsible for these shootings. They included the notorious cowboy Curly Bill Brosius, who uh, had a you know who actually Wyatt and Curly Bill faced off and squared off against each other during this vendetta ride. And the idea was that the only way to stop, you know, further attacks and ambushes was to track down these guys and Wyatt and Doc. That's what they did. Uh, they even had another posse that was on their trail because it was believed some people thought that, that this was an illegal posse. Okay, so let's get another posse to go after the first posse. And uh, it was only when when the the killing was over that uh, that Wyatt was given a choice: come back to Tombstone and face arrest and another trial, or or get out of the state and he and doc decided to cross the border and and they left arizona never to return now let me ask you something johnny ringo how did he die mm. because you know that's in we can pick all the movies we talked about and come up with with 10 different results yeah and and the most popular one the one that that fits the the mythical story of tombstone and the earth brothers and doc holiday and, and cowboys the best is, uh, is is that Johnny Ringo was killed by Doc? Uh, well, some people would say he was killed by Wyatt, but there's very strong evidence that could not possibly have happened. Uh, certainly in the movie Tombstone, they show you know Val Kilmer's Doc Holliday squaring off with the Johnny Ringo character and and killing him. Uh, but uh, as I detail in my book, it's highly highly unlike, unlikely that Doc Holliday, who was in Colorado at that time, could have made it all the way back to to Arizona killed Johnny Ringo and then shown up like the next day back in Colorado. So, uh, so we don't know the, the, the conclusion that is eventually drawn is that Johnny Ringo killed himself. And that might seem like, well, that's kind of reaching for, for straws there. But, uh, one of the fascinating things about Johnny Ringo is that even though he was this kind of psychopathic cow cruelty cowboy, he was also had the side of him that he had this terrible bouts of depression and and uh, it is believed that he, he kind of symbolized the fading cowboy in the American West. He saw the he saw the time was mo- marching on without him, and and uh, he had a really serious problem with alcohol. And it is believed that he got really drunk and he was out, out by himself and he he killed himself. Well, what happens to Wyatt Earp in the long run? What happens after the vendetta? Wyatt has a long life. Uh, there are some Wild West figures who don't. You think of Wild Bill Hickok was dead at 37. Billy the Kid, of course, uh, Jesse James. You know, there are there are any number of of, uh, of famous figures from the American West who did not, you know, even live into middle age. But 
But Wyatt, uh, once all the gunplay was over uh, and Tombstone, the vendetta ride was over, uh, Wyatt went went and got uh, the, the woman he basically stole from the sheriff, Johnny Ringo, uh, excuse me, Johnny Behan, and they went off together, and she became uh, his fourth wife. And uh, but this is he finally got it right because they were together for like 43 years. Uh, Wyatt and Josephine. Uh, they became uh, wanderers, uh, Colorado, Utah, even even had owned a saloon in Alaska. He sold real estate in San Diego. Uh, he he went into business a couple of times with a couple of his brothers and then got restless and hit the trail again. And Wyatt lived uh, until the last few years he was living in Los Angeles where he, um, uh, he was a consultant for silent film westerns. I mean, one of the young directors who, who – Wanted his advice on on pictures was was John Ford. Uh, he became uh, uh, friends with uh, some of the cowboy actors who were famous at the time, like Tom Mix, and that's where he spent his last few years as a consultant on silent westerns. And he he died, uh, I think it was two months before his 81st birthday. So, un- like I say, unlike other figures, uh, Wyatt managed to survive and live for many decades after the events that made him famous. I guess, you know, you brought John Ford back and we talked about My Darling Clementine. Now, John Ford, I heard in an interview, said that he based the gunfight in My Darling Clementine on conversations he had with Wyatt Earp. Do you have any idea where that's coming from? Well, you, you have you have two options. <laughs> One is that John Ford has given us a lot of blarney. <laughs> which uh, is which possible. Which would not be the first time. Yeah. And the other thing is that that these conversations with Wyatt Earp was was Wyatt Earp doing, doing a different version, uh, maybe because of age or for whatever suited his purposes uh, of of the gunfight at the OK Corral, uh, which I doubt because Wyatt was pretty candid for the rest of his life about not aggrandizing himself, about trying to set the record straight. And uh, for those who haven't seen My Darling Clementine, which is a wonderful western, uh, it's just that. You know, you have Doc Holliday dying during the gunfight. You have Virgil being killed before the gunfight even takes place. There's all these moving parts that are about the story that are mixed around. I'm not quite sure what the reason was. But, uh, but yeah, my wife always complains, forward. why didn't they just change the names? Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's a good point because – if if you don't, it's a wonderful movie. If you're not bothered by the inaccuracy, and so and it's probably best to know as little as possible about what actually happened in Tombstone to enjoy that picture. The Vendetta. How many people were killed by Earp, Doc Holliday, and, and company? At least three. Now there may be more because one of the one of the scenes in the book is that. Uh, like when, when when Wyatt kills Curly Bill, there's all kinds of shooting going on, and, and, and bullets are flying. So it's possible that others died at the hands of the Earp Posse that we don't know about. Uh, but we we know of three, and probably four or five were killed. And I think it's interesting to point out that Wyatt Earp, even though he can be portrayed as a as a gun-toting lawman that had all kinds of notches on his on his gun. He was not a violent man. He was not a killer. He was not a gunfighter. So this, he was pushed to the point where he couldn't just be a peace officer anymore. He had to go out there and track these guys down because if he didn't, they were just going to keep coming back. And he wanted to protect not only his remaining brothers but their wives, his family, uh, his family anywhere. So he had to he had to set things right in his mind. And so it was uncharacteristic for Wyatt to do this. And it really, even Doc got scared. You know, Doc, who was, had fewer moral qualms than Wyatt did, 
got scared about what was happening to the the personality of Wyatt Earp, that he was turning into someone he wasn't. I'm going to switch the subject entirely. I mean, you've had books about Wild Bill Hickok and Wyatt Earp and so forth. Let me ask you something. One one of your the, the intriguing characters you wrote about was Bat Masterson. But yet at mm. the same time, if we start talking about film history, I think they're very few. You know, we really can't talk about a lot of great Bat Masterson uh, characters in film. Why do you think that's true? You know, that's a good question. I've really puzzled over it for, for years, ever since I first became interested in the Bat Masterson character and found out how interesting and complex he was. Uh, you know, I, I, I know there's a movie in which he's played, I believe, by Randolph Scott. And then in most of the movies that he's in at all, you know, a lot of times he's left out of the story altogether. Uh, he's basically somebody who just is uh, holds Wyatt Earp's coat uh, for him while Wyatt does all the real work. So, because Bat is such a fascinating, colorful, charismatic character. And it wasn't like he died young either. I mean, he spent the last 15 years of his life as a, as a New York City newspaper reporter. He died at the age of 67. He finished his last column, and he slumped over his, de- his desk dead of a heart attack. Uh, so I think it must be because he did not have that truly defining moment like the gunfight at the OK Corral uh, that, that put him and, – and the vendetta ride that followed that, that put him into the – pantheon of american myths uh ironically bat masterson was in tombstone in 1881 he wyatt had uh, was was having an increasing amount of trouble he, he foresaw that there was going to be some violence and he sent a message out bat wherever you are i need you and Bat came to tombstone and if things had been different bat would have been by wyatt's side at the gunfight at the okay corral but bat's own brother had become the marshal of dodge city and and, and there were threats Bat got a message saying your brother's about to be killed. So Bat, you know, basically got on the first train to Dodge City and did, did arrive in time for a shootout that saved his brother's life. But otherwise, uh, he would have been part. And, and if he, believe me, if he had been part of the gunfight at the OK Corral, Bat Masterson would have, in the decades that followed, become a much bigger figure in American West history. Well, let me ask you this question: Why is it? You know, we're talking about 140 years ago. Why are we still talking about the gunfight at the OK Corral? Why are we talking about the Earps, the Clantons, Bat Masterson, Doc Holliday, so forth? Well, another reason why I wrote the book Tombstone is because it really does, to me, represent this, this last gasp of violence in which the Old West confronted the New West. And if you just go by the body count, the New West won, uh, because the three of the four uh, so-called bad guys representing the Old West were killed in the gunfight at the OK Corral. So I, I, I think we see it, it, was, it was a turning point in American history. I'm not saying that there weren't events after. I mean, there were obviously people that got killed by guns in the West after the gunfight at the OK Corral, because that was in 1881. But the frontier was closing. I mean, it was even just a few years later that the U.S. Secretary of the Interior said there is no more frontier in the United States. We, we, we've settled it. It's It's done. Uh, so I think we're, 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 the gunfight represents that last guess, that last attempt to keep the Wild West wild, and it didn't work. And so there's there's both a triumph and a poignance to that. Okay, very good. Tom, thank you for bringing history to life. The name of the book, Tombstone, The Earp Brothers, Doc Holliday, and Their Vendetta Ride from Hell. Thank you for being on Connor's Corner, Tom. My pleasure. Thank you. 
Mike Connors, host of Ask the Lawyer and published in New York Magazine's top-rated lawyers. Whether assisting a client with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, nursing home plan, or other matter, Connors & Sullivan's goal is always the protection of their clients' rights and interests. Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, has dedicated attorneys that can help you with estate planning, elder law, and probate. They listen to their clients to learn about their families, their financial picture, and their long-term goals to create a comprehensive plan to meet your objectives. They assist with the complex tax matters that are often involved in estate planning and probate. Contact Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, with offices in Brooklyn, Queens, Midtown Manhattan, and Staten Island to schedule a free consultation with an attorney. 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. And listen to Ask the Lawyer right here every Saturday evening at 6. Thanks again to Tom Clavin talking about, you know, Tombstone. I know, Beth, Tombstone is one of your favorite movies, and we talked oh, about that. Oh, my goodness, yes. Of the modern, of the modern Western, absolutely, Tombstone's the best. Val Kilmer, the best Doc Holiday. I think so. Okay. And, of course, Victor Mature. We talked about Victor oh, Mature, which he, he's we're, a little robust to be Doc Holiday. We're going to have to talk about Tombstone on another day. There are a lot of movies. But My Darling Clementine, which is a great movie, and it's like <laughs> we talked about earlier, maybe they should have changed the names. <laughs> All right. So I hope you enjoyed the show today. We're, we're going to be back next week. Listen, hang in there. Absolutely. You know, that's all we can do. Stay safe. And again, if you want to talk things over to us at Connors and Sullivan, you know, we're doing things remotely. Give us a call at 718 Kevin McCullough, are you or your parents' assets protected from nursing home bills? Did you know these bills can exceed $15,000 a month? People work their entire lives to live comfortably in retirement, but when people become ill and need to go to a nursing home or receive home care, the bills can drain their assets, leaving many people bankrupt. The good news is that you can prevent that from happening if you plan in advance. Connors & Sullivan's lawyers can customize a plan that specifically protects your interests, including your home. Schedule a free comprehensive telephone consultation with Mike Connors to discuss your issues and concerns from the security of your home. Call today, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Don't let nursing home bills take your life's savings and leave you and your loved ones bankrupt. Don't wait another minute. Mike Connors can take you through the process by telephone and start a plan designed for you today. That's 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC.